Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Batflip Crazy Podcast, where you'll always find enthusiastic, data-driven fantasy baseball analysis and strategy. I am your host, Toby. Uh, Today, I am going to be covering um, some hitter and pitcher observations, just, uh, you know, maybe uh, I think I get close to 10 of those, and then uh, going through some mailbag questions. I think there's some pretty good questions in there, um, just about you know identifying uh, minor leaguers or guys who aren't currently starters and how to stash them or get them early on FAB. Uh, some of the considerations there, um, as well as some questions around trades and FABs and other and FAB and, and other things. So hopefully you enjoy that. Um, this is the first time that I'm I feel like I'm doing like a true mailbag at least in a little while. So if you like that format, let me know. Feel Feel free to hit me up with questions on Twitter. I'm always happy um, to answer those uh, as much as I can. I did want to apologize. Um, you know, only one uh, podcast probably this week. I've been trying to get them out, but um, just uh, got a lot of things going on. Did some traveling last week for um, work, and uh, I've been exhausted this week. And Game of Thrones was really long, and uh, my son's uh, baseball games and stuff like that. So apologize. Uh, for that, for sure. I'll try to be a little bit more consistent in getting up, uh, getting these podcasts out at least a couple a week. Uh, I am super excited this weekend and early next week. I am going to be on a few other podcasts. Um, going to be on the Robbie Rowe show, uh, I believe on uh, Sunday is when we're going to be recording and then uh, going to be joining Justin Mason uh, for two podcasts next week. Uh, one on uh, Friends with Family uh, uh, friends with fantasy benefits, and then the uh, second one uh, for a TGFBI. So super um, excited about that, and very appreciative um, as always for those opportunities. Um, all right. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast or the previous podcast, please do leave a five star rating and review. Uh, really, really appreciate uh, all those reviews and ratings coming in. Um, it does help, uh, you know, uh, get the podcast out there. Uh, Share it if you do. If you have left a five star rating and review, please do like and retweet and share it. Let folks know um, how much you enjoy the podcast. If you do, um, and uh, yeah, help help spread the word a little bit. It's always um, super helpful, and, and I'm always very appreciative of that. All right, the best place to reach me, as always, is on Twitter at batflipcrazy. Definitely hit me up there. Uh, my website is batflipcrazy.com, but I'm not. I have not been very good recently, just with everything going on uh, at keeping my other um, uh, mediums uh, with consistent content. So the best places to hit me up is is definitely on Twitter. So, all right, let's hop into some hitter and pitcher observations and the mailbag. Let's get this party started. All right, let's get cracking. On today's podcast, I'm going to cover a handful of uh, hitter and uh, hitters and pitchers, kind of going over observations, a little bit about why they may be doing well or doing poorly uh, based on underlying skills and what we might be able to expect from them moving forward. And then I'm going to do a little bit of a uh, of a mailbag, if you will. I asked if folks had any questions about strategy on Twitter, and and people had some uh, some really good questions, and so I'm going to pr- try to give uh, some thoughtful answers to those, uh, taking into connect uh, into account kind of what. Uh, what I do in in various situations and kind of what kind of criteria I'm looking at when I make certain decisions. So 
we will get into that. Uh, first, let's get started with hitters. So one guy I just wanted to, to highlight is Logan Forsythe uh, for folks in deeper leagues. He's had a pretty nice start to the season, uh, 278 batting average, 376 OBP, 13 runs, three home runs, 14 RBI, and one stolen base for Forsythe. Uh, o swing at 12.9%, which is very, very elite. Uh, Z contact in zone contact at 89.2%. Uh, hard hit rate at 46.6%, also really nice there. And ground ball rate at 41.4%. Statcast data, a 362 expected WOBA with four barrels, 4.8% barrels per plate appearance, and 105.7 as a max exit velocity. Now, uh, having elite plate discipline and contact skills isn't necessarily anything new for Forsyth, but what did catch my attention is the fact that his hard hit rate uh, has jumped up significantly. It's up 13% so far this year. Uh, He's playing regularly for the Rangers. I believe he's batting uh, towards the top of that uh, lineup at the moment. Uh, And his ground ball rate is also down by 7%. That 41.4% isn't great overall, but it is much better for Foresight. And I think you can see that with some of the stack cast data. A well above league average expected WOBA. Uh, The barrels, you know, aren't aren't terrific, um, but he is playing in a really nice hitter's park. Uh, uh, at Globe Life, I think it's still called Globe Life, uh, for the Rangers. And so, you know, in deeper leagues, in OBP leagues, he may be a guy that you want to take a look at because I do see some some slight differences underneath the hood uh, for him uh, with that bump in hard hit rate and the lower ground ball rate. So that uh, improved batted ball quality when you couple it with the plate skills is a pretty nice uh, addition. I believe he also has uh, dual position eligibility uh, in most most formats. So Forsyth is a guy uh, that I would be taking a look at. Jake Bowers, I put out a tweet about him, about how May is going to be defined as uh, the uh, Jake Bowers breakout tour. Uh, not great so far for Bowers. Certainly, I'm somebody who has hyped him a lot. He was the guy that I had the most in terms of hitters on any of my teams. Uh, 241 average, 323 OBP, 12 runs, three home runs, 11 RBI, and one stolen base so far. So not an atrocious line, but certainly a little disappointing for those of us who had high hopes. The O-swing is elite at 21.6%. Very, very nice plate discipline that Bowers continues to show. The in-zone contact rate is uh, way up as well, 92.9% so far this year. That's also an elite number. So those plate skills, those are the things that I talked about as really liking with Bowers. And what I mentioned you know, is that it looked like from from during draft time that what he really needed to improve was that contact rate, that there were signs that there was pretty strong batted ball quality and the plate discipline was there, but the contact was missing a little bit. Well, you know, he's improved the contact skills dramatically, but the batted ball quality has not been as good as last year. The hard hit rate is down at 28.4%, and his ground ball rate is right around the same at 43.9%. Statcast data not overwhelming by any stretch of the imagination. 294 expected WOBA, four barrels, 4.4% barrels per plate appearance, uh, 108.7 mile per hour max exit velocity. So nothing that really jumps out uh, uh, out of the page uh, at you. What I do love about Bowers is the incredible foundation that he has from in terms of plate discipline 
and contact, right? He's swinging at good pitches, theoretically, because of that low O swing. Um, He is also making contact uh, on pitches inside the zone, which is also a very good um, you know, thing, right? Uh, he's not, uh, the strikeout rate should not be very high. That should help his batting average a little bit. He should get on base. Um, he's, he is getting on base at a, at a decent clip, uh, despite the low batting average. Um, so those things are good, but the batted ball quality does need to improve. It really is lagging. Uh, but recently he's shown some signs of heating up a little bit. The ground ball percentage is down slightly, so he's elevating the ball a little bit more. Um, And his hard hit rate is also up about 10% over what it is for the full season in the last uh, two weeks or so. So that's good. And he's also coming to a really soft spot in the schedule for the the Indians. Uh, The next uh, six series are against teams that I would qualify as not having very good starting pitching. Uh, The Mariners... Uh, the White Sox, the A's, the White Sox again, the Orioles, and then the A's again. So the next three weeks really should tell us um, a lot about Bowers, I think, whether the batted ball quality uh, can turn around. Remember, he is going to have a softer schedule than most because he plays in the AL Central, and he doesn't have to go up against his own team's pitching, uh, although they're kind of falling like flies. But... um, you know, this should give us a really good indication whether Bowers is ready to take that next step. And again, I'm not expecting anything uh, crazy from him. You know, my bold prediction, I think, was 25 home runs and 15 uh, stolen bases. So whether or not we get to that, if he can just provide a 20 home run, 15 stolen base uh, type of season with around league average batting average, that's going to be incredibly helpful uh, for where you drafted him uh, in drafts. All right, next up we have Manny Machado, obviously an elite hitter who has struggled uh, during his initial uh, time with the Padres. 236 batting average, 325 OBP, 14 runs, 4 home runs, 12 RBI, 1 stolen base. He did hit a home run today, uh, so he does have 5 now. O swing at 32.6%, so uh, slightly worse than league average, but right about around where he he normally is. In zone contact rate at 83.7%, slightly below, about 5% uh, down from last season. His hard hit rate is at 39.5%, which is right around where he normally is at. And the ground ball percentage is also um, up at 44.7%, slightly worse than league average. Uh, that is also up 4% from last year. So he's not a super low ground ball guy, Machado, um, but it is elevated a little bit so far. Stat cast data, not great. 293 expected WOBA, five barrels, 4.7 barrels per plate appearance and a 109.9 mile per hour max exit velocity. When you look at Machado though, just in the context of you know a broader trends, this aligns with kind of typical variance in, with Machado um, and his profile. I think it's just particularly noticeable given the contract he signed, the fact that it's the beginning of the season uh, and that he's with the new team. And so I think, you know, I, I don't see any major reasons to be concerned about Machado and his production uh, this year. You know, I think you were expecting maybe a little bit of a downgrade in in uh, production because of the the shift over to the Padres um, and a little bit of a worse hitting environment than he had been hitting in, but uh, not major. And so I think he'll he'll probably go on a hot streak here uh, pretty soon and 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 get back to where I think everybody expected him him to be. 
Uh, next up, we have Ramon Laureano, uh, 234 batting average, 291 OBP, 16 runs, six, uh, 16 runs, three home runs, uh, 11 RBI, three stolen bases, O swing at 30.7%, so right around league average. In zone contact at 83.3%, slightly worse than a little bit uh, worse than uh, league average. Hard hit rate right around league average at 34.7%. Uh, ground ball rate at 38.7%. The stat cast data is actually okay. 322 expected WOBA, so right around league average with a 284 WOBA. So he is getting a decent amount of bad luck so far this year in terms of his. Uh, balls in play, seven barrels, a 6.7% barrels per plate appearance with a 111.6 mile per hour um, uh, max exit velocity. Now, folks are concerned about Loriano. Obviously, he started out the season initially at the top of the, the A's lineup and he's no longer there. But I think, you know, what we've seen so far from Loriano really highlights what makes players with his profile so valuable, those power speed uh, guys so valuable because despite his struggles, I mean, he still provided three home runs and three stolen bases for you. And when you prorate that out over the course of the entire season, and I'm not saying you do that with folks' stats, but at this point in the season, I think the exercises like that are helpful just to kind of see what pace you're on. Like it's, it's difficult when you, you know, just look uh, outside of context at those, those, um, at the numbers at this point in the season because you're not really sure, okay, what does that play out? If he were to continue that type of production, where would that put him? And this would you know, put him at a better than 15 and 15 pace, so 15 home runs and 15 stolen bases, uh, which is certainly valuable despite him not playing up to, I think, what some fantasy owners' expectations were. But there, you know, there's the 5% uh, drop in hard hit rate. Uh, we've also seen a dip, though, in ground ball percentage. So he's hitting the ball in the air more. He's had that bad luck. So I don't see any major reasons for concern with Loriano. I think it's mostly bad luck so far. And, and you know, what what is particularly, I think, uh, solid for me is that StatCast data. You know, he had really great StatCast data. <clears throat> last year, which I think was a little bit of a surprise to folks, but he's been able to maintain that. And so I think moving forward, Loreano is still a guy who should be uh, rostered in, in all leagues. And I think he's a guy that can provide some value uh, moving forward, especially, you know, as that A's lineup starts to heat up, you know, they just, they haven't been as good, I think, as folks uh, were expecting so far, but I, I do think there's too many good players uh, in that lineup uh, for them to, uh, to struggle for too long. Next up is uh, Jose Ramirez, uh, like Machado, a guy that folks are really relying on uh, as a first round pick or, uh, you know, he's definitely a first round pick, Machado in the second round, but um, so far has struggled 181 average, 281 OBP, 13 runs, two home runs, nine RBI and nine stolen bases. That nine stolen bases has been uh, at least a little bit of a silver lining in the overall struggles for Ramirez. O swing at 26.1%, in zone contact rate at 90.3%. So both very, very good numbers, not necessarily the elite numbers that we're used to with Ramirez, but still very, very good. 
His hard hit rate is actually up 39.3% this year, and his ground ball rate is right around where it was last year at 33%. So those are two really good signs. The StatCast data shows that he has been very unlucky. 332 expected Woba with a 252 Woba, although even that 332 expected Woba would be very disappointing uh, for a first-round pick. Uh, seven barrels, 6.3% barrels per plate appearance, 108.1 mile per hour max exit velocity. The thing about Ramirez is he's never been a stat cast darling. You know, even last year, I think this 6.3% barrels per plate appearance rate is actually higher than his was last year when he hit all those home runs. Um, you know, there isn't anything really alarming in the profile. You know, he's he's got 80 points of bad luck on that WOBA. Um, he's pulling the ball in the air slightly less, which is a little bit of a concern because that's really where he has been so successful is with just sheer volume of uh, pulled fly balls. Uh, that's where he's been able to generate that power. He's got an incredibly low home run per fly ball rate, which will not... Um, you know, stay that low at 5.1%. Um, and that's really across the board. You know, if you look, if you break down those batted balls by hard hit uh, fly balls, by hard hit pulled fly balls, everything is lower than it has been the last couple years. And so I think that's why we're seeing uh, some of those initial struggles. With a lot of these Midwest teams, you know, the Reds come to mind, the Indians come to mind as two teams that started off really, really slow. I think as the as the weather warms up a little bit, I expect the offense uh, to warm up a little bit too. And, and the same for Ramirez. The good news is that he has continued to steal bases. And in today's landscape where stolen bases are just so hard to come by, those nine stolen bases are a big help. And so if he can add that power and a little bit of that batting average that we've come to expect from him with Francisco Lorndor back in the lineup, you know, the top end of the lineup is not bad uh, for the Indians. You know, Lindor, uh, Kip, uh, Kipnis, who really shouldn't be there, but Ramirez and then uh, Carlos Santana, it's not it's not the best in the league, but it's certainly not the worst. And so I think the the counting stats will be there as well. So I think overall, you may not get first round production from Ramirez, but I think when all is said and done, he's not going to be a reason why you've lost um, your fantasy league necessarily. And then those stolen bases can certainly be a little bit of a help. Uh, the last hitter I'm going to cover is Jackie Bradley Jr. 148 batting average, 224 OBP, five runs, zero home runs, five RBIs, and three stolen bases. Probably one of the worst slash lines uh, that is out there right now, except for maybe those three stolen bases. O swing at 29.8%, so right around league average. The end zone contact rate is at 76%, which is way below league average. Um, uh, league average for in zone contact is around 84% this year. So that's way down. And that isn't necessarily something new for Bradley. He actually struggled with contact last year, but he was just making such better quality contact that it wasn't as much of a difference. Um, when you combine that with the ground ball rate of 59.3%, which is a 15% increase over last year, um, and the hard rate, hard hit rate being slightly down right around league average at 36.7%. I think that huge ground ball rate uh, coupled with that uh, low contact rate is a recipe for disaster. And that's what we're seeing right now. 249 expected WOBA, uh, one barrel, 1.1% barrels per plate appearance, 109.3 max exit velocity. Essentially, like you have kind of all the negative things you could have coming together here for JBJ. You have the high ground ball rate. Um, you have the poor contact skills and, uh, and you're getting what you're getting. And so Bradley is, 
you know, a very streaky hitter. We saw that towards the end of last year. We've seen it in previous seasons when he had like that 36 game or 30 plus game hitting streak. He can get hot quick. But I think, you know, in some of the shallower leagues, I know in my 12 team league where I have shallow benches, only five bench spots, uh, I I dropped him uh, last week at some point. I think in some of the shallower leagues, you know, where you don't have those deep benches where you can kind of hold out and wait for him, I think it's okay um, to drop him at this point. Um, again, you know, he's, he can get hot and he can produce and he's in a great lineup, but you know, he's at the end of that lineup. He's not getting a ton of plate appearances and you know, that ground ball rate is scary. And so I think at this point, um, it's okay to, uh, to let JBJ loose and then just continue to monitor, you know, some of the underlying skills, see if that ground ball rate shifts a little bit. Um, see if he starts to make some more contact and and don't be hesi- don't hesitate to try to uh, get him back on your team if nobody else picks him up. All right, uh, for pitchers, gonna couple cover uh, three pitchers um, and then gonna hop into the ma- mailbag. So uh, the first pitcher is Kyle Hendricks, twenty five and a third innings pitched, a five thirty three ERA, one seventy eight WHIP, twenty four Ks in those twenty five and a third innings. A 436 Sierra and a 408 XFIP uh, for Hendricks. So, you know, he's not doing as poorly as we would expect, although it's important to note that Hendricks has always outperformed. Um, he's one of those guys because he has routinely generated a low uh, BABIP uh, who regularly outperforms a lot of uh, the uh, ERA estimators. So that's just something to take into consideration. Uh, Fastball velocity is at 86.8 miles per hour. That's actually down one mile per hour from last year. O swing at 30.9%, so right around league average. First pitch strike rate at 61.3%, right around league average. Zone percentage at 46.6%, above league average. In-zone contact at 90.5%. Uh, so that's not good. Uh, that's well, that's well worse than legally average. Swinging strike rate also very far down at seven point six percent. His CF his CSW called plus swinging strike is actually okay at 28.7%. It's better than league average. He's always a guy like Aaron Nola who gets a ton of called strikes every year. K minus walk rate, 13.5%. So right around league average. Uh, BABIP at 405 and a strand rate at 58.8%. So expect some significant regression there. His expected WOBA is at 344. His current WOBA is at 371. So Hendricks' 2019 has really gotten off to a similar start to his 2018. He started off very slow uh, last year, and it's really a theme throughout his career. I don't generally pay a ton of attention to first and second half splits, but in Hendricks's case, it's definitely different. His ERA is a full run lower in the second half, 364 in the first half, 266 in the second half, and it always feels like his sinker just needs a little bit of time to become its best self. Uh, that was the case last year. It seems to be uh, the case again this year, and it's such a critical pitch because his changeup uh, is really his best pitch overall consistently, and they play off each other really well. So if his sinker's not playing well or his changeup isn't playing well, uh, then he generally uh, struggles, and I think that's what we're seeing right now. You know, folks aren't chasing his sinker. The O swing on his sinker is down um, from last year by about 5%. 
Um, he's also not generating as many whiffs on his changeup. Uh, so I'm not sure whether it is the one mile per hour dip in velocity, but it just feels like Hendricks's uh, margin of error is much lower than a lot of pitchers. And so unless everything is kind of working together, um, then he he's definitely not... Uh, he, he can have some poor outings. And I think when everything is working together, which he's good at doing, it may just take a little bit of time uh, for him to get there. So whether it's weather-related, whatever it is, this is a theme through for Hendricks. And so I would I would play the matchups at this point. Um, uh, you know, and, and if he's got any tough matchups, kind of sit him and just uh, make maybe wait a little bit and, and see if he can work it out. I'm actually starting him this week. I've got him in a couple places. I'm starting him this week against the Cardinals, who obviously have a good lineup. Um, but, you know, he's at home. And I think it was against the Cardinals that he had that really good uh performance this year. So uh, we'll see how that goes, but definitely a guy I think you you want to handle a little lightly uh, right now until he shows that everything is working for him. Uh, Jalen Beeks, uh, this uh, info does not have today's start. This this is podcast is being recorded on uh, Wednesday night, um, but he pitched really well today. 19 uh, innings pitched so far, 332 ERA, 147 whip, not so good there. 20 strikeouts in those 19 innings, a 389 Sierra, a 380 XFIP. Um, his fastball velocity is down one mile per hour. It's at 93 so far this year. is actually down even further today. Um, even though he pitched well, um, his, his uh, four-seam only averaged 92 uh, today. O-swing at 33.3%, so really solid there. First pitch strike rate at 63.5%, uh, right around league average. Uh, zone percentage at 43.9%, also right around league average. Um, the strikeout skills are okay. Uh, in-zone contact at 83.7%. That's that's nice there. 10.5% swinging strike rate, right around league average, slightly worse for a reliever. Um, his CSW is pretty low at 25.1%. So not the best strikeout skills in the world. K-minus walk rate at 14.1%. BABIP at 345. Strand rate at 79.7%. Expected WOBA at 324, so right around league average, and a 328 uh, WOBA. So prior to today's outing, I was going to, I knew I was going to cover him because I had a few people uh, ask, um, but I was just going to say he's like the most mediocre pitcher imaginable. And I don't necessarily mean that as a, as a criticism, just that he's about league average at everything. Um, and, and the fact that he's about league average at everything, and he's basically replacing Ryan Yarborough right now as the Rays, uh, second post opener after Yanni Chirinos, who also sometimes starts. Um, you know, that's not a terrible profile to have, right? Ryan Yarborough was not the best pitcher in the world last year, but he was able to uh, vulture a ton of wins by being that post opener guy, the second guy who who, who pitches him with, with Tampa being a really solid team and um, having a really strong uh, top of their lineup. You know, you can see him. Uh, him also being successful in that role in getting a decent number of wins just by uh, by the sheer fact that he's coming in as the second pitcher and if the Rays have a lead at any point during that time then you know he's going to get that win um 
in terms of the overall stuff, you know, all of the skills look pretty average, but you know, he's got a solid changeup. It's been a good pitch for him. And what's really interesting is that his cutter this year um, has been a lot better than uh, last year. It's a very small sample size, but it has been a dominant pitch, a 25% swinging strike rate. That doesn't include the 33% swinging strike rate he had today on that pitch. He threw nine cutters and he got three swinging strikes on it. So, you know, if you are in a league uh, that uh, counts wins, which is most leagues, then I think there are a lot worse options. Uh, You just have to be prepared to be disappointed because sometimes there is a change in plan for the Rays and a guy who was going to be an opener may not uh, be the opener or he may be the third guy in. Um, you know, you you just never really know. So there's a little bit of uh, risk involved there. But I think overall, especially in deeper leagues, like your 15-team leagues, um, he's definitely a guy that you, I think, want to have on your team uh, for... Um, uh, just for those just for those wins and the fact that I don't think he's going to necessarily hurt you uh, anywhere in particular. One guy that I'm super excited about after diving into him is Chris Bassett. Uh, he's only thrown 12 innings, but he's got a .75 ERA, a .75 whip, 16 strikeouts in those 12 innings, a 310 Sierra, and a 294 XFIP. Now, his velocity on his fastball is up one mile per hour. It's at 94 so far this year. Um, And all the skills, except for maybe some of the control skills, are excellent. So the O-swing is at 34.2%, which is great. First pitch strike a little low at 55.3%. We want to see that slightly higher. Uh, Zone percentage right around league average at 43.1%. So definitely helped out by that O-swing being higher. But the in-zone contact rate is at 78%, so much better than league average. Swinging strike rate is at 14.4%, much better than league average. His called plus swinging strike rate is at 31.3%, much better than league average. His K-minus walk rate is at 25.5%. Much better than league average. Now, a reminder, this is only 12 innings pitched, right? But this is still a dominant small sample, and I think that's important. Uh, Babbitt at 160, strand rate at 100%, so major regression coming there. But when we look at his expected WOBA, it's at 215, which is excellent, um, and a 200 WOBA. So, you know, even though he is doing really, really well, based on all of the metrics, both the underlying skills and the batted ball quality, he's been doing really, really well. Well, now the velocity is up, and the one thing there's a few things that really interest me about Bassett's profile. Number one, he's throwing his four seam fastball a lot more. He's throwing it 10% more uh, than he has in previous seasons, and he's throwing his sinker 10% less. Now, what's awesome about that is his four seam so far has a 16.7% swinging strike rate, right? It's not likely to stay that high, but anytime you have a pitcher whose four seam fastball has a swinging strike rate above 10%, Uh, I think that's huge because it just sets a really nice baseline uh, for that swinging strike rate and for the strikeout skills. So he's throwing that four-seamer more, the sinker less, which has the lowest swinging strike rate, not surprisingly, of his pitches. And his curveball and his changeup have always been effective pitches throughout his career. Uh, the curveball has a he has a career 53 WRC plus uh, on the curveball, and the changeup has a career zero WRC plus. So really, really good. And then this year, his slider is also. Uh, kind of at heights that it's never seen before. It's always been a sub 10% swinging strike rate pitch. Uh, This year it's above 20%. So it's a very, very small sample, but the dude's got three pitches 
with a 20% swinging strike rate or higher. And his four-seam fastball is also generating a ton of swings and misses. He's throwing with additional velocity. He's playing on a team with a good offense in a good park with a really good defense. I think a lot of things are lining up here for Bassett to maybe be a guy who has a pretty significant breakout. Now, again, it's a very, very small sample. He's kind of coming out of nowhere, so you never know. Um, you know, he could blow up tomorrow and all these skills were just a two-start, uh, you know, uh, little glimpse. But he's a guy that I would be targeting in all leagues right now just because that small sample is so dominant and there's so much to like in the overall profile. Um, so he's definitely a guy that I would be um, uh, going after for sure. Now, one guy who was mentioned, I know people have concerns with him. I'm not going to do a full-on dive into his profile. That's Noah Syndergaard. You know, some things to like, some things not to like. But what I just mentioned about Syndergaard before I hop into the mailbag is, you know, he's got a 283 expected WOBA on a 355 WOBA. So he's been incredibly unlucky so far. So he's obviously, you know, either your SP1 or your SP2 if you targeted a lot of starting pitching early. And so it's not like you're, you can really do anything, right? He's not a guy that you just replace, um, and so I think you're holding on to him, and I think better days are ahead uh, for Syndergaard just based solely on luck factors, um, you know, with the skills being slightly up and slightly down in, in different areas. All right, uh, that is going to wrap us up for the player profiles. Uh, now let's hop into uh, the mailbag. So I just asked folks if they had any questions about strategy or generally, um, you know, about um, you know, anything really fantasy baseball related uh, that they were interested in, in hearing about. Uh, and I got a few questions. So the first question is from, uh, uh, from one, of my, one of the favorite listeners of the pod, um, and that's Yancey Eaton. Uh, so whenever Yancey asks a question or he uh, wants a player analyzed, uh, Yancey gets it because he's always, uh, always been a tremendous support, not only for my podcast, to be honest with you, but for so many people's podcasts. He's just, uh, just a really, really nice guy to have on your side because he is great at uh, promoting other folks and, and work that he appreciates. So we appreciate that as well. So he says, uh, maybe not your wheelhouse, but I'd love to hear how you're assessing which players to add before they either get called up from the minors or assume the starting role from someone else. Basically, what is your process for adding players early before they cost all the fab? Uh, it's a great question because I think that's one of the keys to fab and, and success. Um, and I don't think there's like a recipe that works 100% of the time, but if you can get those guys a week or two early, you know, I think that, that that can be critical, critical, critical to your success. So um, what I'll say is a lot of this is, is very dependent on uh, the team that you have. So for instance, if at this point in the season, if you're sitting in a good spot, right, you, um, you've, you've started off really well, you're feeling good about your starting lineup, you have some roster flexibility, you can afford to stash a guy on your bench, or you have deep benches in your leagues, you know, I think that's one situation which makes it obviously context-wise much, much more easier uh, to find a spot for these guys, right? Like, you know, a lot of times in today's game, like the Vlad Juniors are taken, the Nick Senzels are taken, but 
you know, for guys like the Nate Lowe's of the world who are on folks' radar, but there's really some questions about when they might be brought up, you know, that obviously is is critical. And, and if you're sitting in that good position, I would actually recommend, you know, don't sit on your laurels and, and think that you're, you're going to win automatically. But one of the ways that you can ensure future success is by taking a little bit of risk uh, by adding some of those guys that you expect to be really good when they do get the opportunity um, because, you know, your team is playing well and you've, you've been afforded a little bit of a cushion. So that's one thing that I'd say. If you've gotten off to a slower start, you may not have that same luxury, right? Um, and so, you know, that I think is one of the things that you need to take into consideration when thinking about both the number of players that you're looking to potentially stash and whether you're actually even able to do that. Think in formats like NFBC where you have seven player benches but no DL slots, it makes it really hard to stash guys for extended period of, periods of time, especially when you have overall competitions and things like that. Um, so, you know, I think uh, though that's key, like where you are in a given season, it, it, I factor in a lot uh, whether I'm willing to stash folks. Um, I think another thing is, is the league settings, like I mentioned it, but depending on how, how deep your bench is, uh, depending on what your DL spots are, are, you know, I actually wouldn't recommend stashing more than maybe one guy in like an NFBC format, um, you know, just because... Uh, well, number one, in NFBC, a lot of times you can't stash a guy unless you've drafted them uh, because the, they don't show up in the player pool unless they were drafted. Um, but in those kind of shallower bench leagues, um, I would just recommend kind of identifying that one guy um, that you maybe want to take on. Um, so that's one thing. You know, um, in terms of like thinking about who you want to stash and when opportunities might show up, you know, one thing I always do is I listen to, uh, I try to listen to prospect podcasts and that's because prospects aren't necessarily, I don't have as much time as I would like, uh, to dedicate to learning about prospects. And so um, one thing that's always really helpful is looking at folks who do uh, spend the time uh, investing in, in, in researching prospects. And so, you know, two, two podcasts, for instance, that I do listen to, Prospects Live is one uh, that I listen to. There's some great folks um, that are doing work uh, at Prospects Live, you know, the whole website over there, just being able to look at um, who they're liking. And, and they also do regular updates during the season, which prospects might be getting close to called up, which ones are heating up and may kind of force teams' hands. And then also the RotoWire podcast, uh, Prospect Podcast with James Anderson and Clay Link is also uh, a really good one. You know, there's also, there's a ton of other good ones out there. Those are just two I think that I find myself uh, listening to regularly and just following folks on Twitter uh, who who do podcast who do prospects because they are going to have kind of their their ear closer to the ground when it comes to who might be getting called up um, and and what might be coming in the next uh, few weeks or so and so I think um, you know those are kind of some things as it relates to pod uh, to prospects and I think also you know why it's so important to pay attention to the league more broadly is just un understanding like what the playing time opportunities might be for folks so whether it's a prospect or a guy who's currently on the bench who has some skills that you really, really like, you need to be paying attention to players um, who are struggling or where the weaknesses uh, in any given, uh, any given team might be. Like an example of this would be, for me, I spent a bunch of fab on Cole Tucker. It hasn't paid off for sure yet. You know, he has not looked uh, great at the plate so far. But the reason why I put so much um, you know, uh, fab down on him in particular was, you know, he was going to the Pirates. They've struggled at shortstop this year. They just don't have anybody to fill that position. Uh, Eric Gonzalez is injured. He wasn't playing that well. 
Uh, Newman uh, was demoted. Uh, you know, so it really looked like an opportunity where a guy could come in and he would get a ton of playing time. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, he would have been a guy that I would be looking at, um, you know, as somebody who, who I might want to stash. Another thing is like with top prospects, right? With, with your Senzels, your Vlads, your top prospects within organizations, a lot of times playing time when they get called up isn't as much of a challenge. Um, because teams don't want to stall their development by sitting them on the bench, right? They want to give them plenty of playing time. And so when it comes to those guys, like I don't have a problem stashing them because I think in today's game, they have so much value. Uh, they're, they're coming to the league so good already uh, that I think it's, 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 it's okay to stash goes the guys like that. And then I think also paying attention to guys who are struggling, right? So like you know, the example of Carter uh, Kiboom or Kaiboom, I'm not sure how you pronounce the last name, but him coming up with the Nats and knowing that Brian Dozier has struggled a little bit so far, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that I know for sure that uh, if Kaiboom hit, hits that he's going to stay in the Nats lineup, but it does open a little bit more of an opportunity, whether that's like 10 to 25% more of an opportunity, I'm not sure. But being aware of situations where uh, uh, an incumbent may be struggling significantly. Uh, Scott Shebler is a good example, right? Like Shebler has been struggling tremendously this year. And that's one of the reasons why Senzel is probably coming up when he has, you know, number one, like, uh, you know, there's the service time issues, but number two, there's actually an opening and a need and the Reds have started off slowly. And if they want to be in, in competition for the playoffs, they're need, they're going to need to uh, move uh, quickly. So I think understanding existing players and how they're performing and where the holes on teams might be that need to be filled, especially on contenders, right? Because they're better offensively and they also have less of a margin for failure. Um, and so the last one is really thinking about your own needs as a team. So if I have a need, like I did for Cole Tucker at middle infield uh, and at stolen bases, you know, then I'm going to be a lot more willing to maybe stash a player who fits those two needs or you know, again, Tucker's may not be a good example because I did pay an exorbitant price for him on fab, but like an example of that might be like with Nate Lowe, um, you know, Nate Lowe, if you needed a corner infielder and you needed some power and maybe you, you don't play in a weekly league, but you play in an NFBC where you can change midweek for your hitters. So if you think that he's going to be platooned uh, against right-handed pitchers, you know, having to start him for a full week when he may only get, you know, four or five starts is one thing. But when you can go into a half week knowing that he's either going to go against four right-handed pitchers or three right-handed pitchers on the weekend and Friday, you know, whatever it is, those I think are examples where there's more of an opportunity to stash guys or to go ahead um, is in situations where you have a particular need, both position-wise or statistically, um, and there's a guy who's out there who's being considered for a call-up um, who fits that need. And so I think that is an example. Another one that I would say, and I always do this, is always looking ahead. Uh, Roster Resource has a really good um, they have a, a Major League Baseball schedule grid, which kind of uh, shows you over the next month, what are the teams that each team is playing? Uh, who are the starting pitchers that they're scheduled to face in the next little bit? And so for situations like that, I think it can help you identify guys who may be on the waiver wire, who might be showing some signs of breaking out or having some skills. And then if they're going up against some weak opponents, then that might be an example of 
you know, a guy that you kind of want to uh, uh, go after, or you may want to stash them knowing uh, that there may be a good uh, opportunity uh, coming up for some weak uh, competition. So I think those are, you know, that's a really long answer to Yancey's question, but I think there are so many different facets of of considering both your team dynamic, uh, considering the team dynamic of the major league baseball teams, um, and then also understanding kind of the basic rules about um, eligibility and service times and things of that nature, but really kind of having that comprehensive um, understanding of, you know, like your league settings and how many roster spots you have and how well you're doing and whether you have that the luxury of stashing a guy or two guys who may be coming up and then uh, making sure that you have access to that knowledge through prospect writers or podcasts about who might get the call up and really trying to be as informed as possible about uh, the situation overall is, is your best bet for getting folks um, before they cost a ton of fab, you know, and that also works for closers. I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I, I, I got Hansel Robles for like 10 bucks in a bunch of different places uh, two weeks ago because I was, you know, kind of monitoring that situation, knew Cody Allen was struggling, knew that he'd been replaced in a recent closing situation. And so far that's worked out okay for me. Um, But, you know, that's another example where you can kind of foresee maybe some struggles for a guy and know that you're only going to roster him for a week or two if the situation doesn't change. But um, if it does, you're able to benefit considerably from that. So I hope that uh, wasn't too much of a long-winded answer and provides some context in terms of what I am thinking about as well. The next question was, how long are you willing to hold unproven young players who are off to slow starts? I think it's kind of a similar response to what I had for the previous question in just fully understanding what your needs are as a team, what the settings are in your league, whether you have the luxury of holding on to a guy because you have deeper benches or whether you don't have those. And then I also think looking at the skills, right? Like it's one thing if a guy is demonstrating really strong skills to start off with um, and he just looks like he's getting unlucky. So maybe he's got a big difference between his ex-WOBA and his WOBA. And so he's been unlucky, but his contact rate is nice. He's being disciplined at the plate. He's hitting the ball hard. He's hitting it in the air. All those things that you're looking for, as opposed to maybe like, like a good example would be a Jesse Winker, right? Jesse Winker and a Fran Mil Reyes. They're both started out the season struggling. They still have relatively low batting averages. But when you look at the overall skill set, when you look at the ex-WOBA versus the WOBA differential, when you look at like the strides they're making as hitters, they look really, really, really good. And I don't want to. I don't want to um, be impatient with guys like that because all it takes is one hot week, especially at this point in the season, to turn that season around. I mean, uh, Jesse Winker last year. I can't remember what it was. I think I mentioned on a recent podcast, but he hit like three thirty for two plus months. One hundred fifty one plate appearances of three thirty with similar skills to what he's showing right now. Like that's what happens when you give up on a player early if they're showing the skills that they can to succeed, um, you know, is you miss out on things like that. Just like Reyes, like he's going to crush a bunch of home runs soon because he's hitting the ball really, really well. And he's been doing that consistently for a pretty decent amount of time. And, you know, especially in like daily league. So understanding that, you know, there's a deep outfield in for the Padres and then he may get some de- subbed out defensively, understanding that like 
you know, he was going to be more valuable, for instance, in a daily league than maybe he would be in a weekly league where you may only get two out of four games or something like that. So I think all of those things are really what you're looking at. But for me, especially early on in a season, it's why I always look at underlying skills. I want to understand what is happening with the player and why they're performing like they're performing. And if I see a reason you know, why they shouldn't be performing poorly, then I'm willing to hold on to them a lot longer than I would be if I just see them being totally overmatched. So hope that uh, helps answer that question. The next question is around fab. And the question is, what is the best strategy for bid amounts in a $100 fab league? So if you have $100 for the full year in fab, um, you know, and, and I, had, I was joking around when the person asked this question because I was like, ah, fab is an imperfect system, but I will provide my best opportunity. And this is coming from somebody, my, you know, myself, uh, who recently uh, overbid $200 for a player. So uh, take that, take everything I say with a grain of salt uh, uh, from this point forward. So, you know, I think a lot of fab and understanding bid amounts for fab is really um, a matter of a, a few things. I think, you know, if it's a home league or something like that, I think knowing uh, knowing your league and knowing what it takes to get different caliber of players. And so especially like this, this far into the season, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to go back and look at what the fab bids are week to week or day by day that different players are getting to get different caliber of players. So if a guy has a huge night, let's say a guy hits three home runs and so he's going to be on everybody's radar uh, for the next weekly fab, take a look back and think about a similar scenario or a situation where uh, a player of a similar ilk had come along and what the the bidding on that player um, you know might have been. And so an example for me might be like I bid 300 plus for Cole Tucker, you know, and when I think about Cole Tucker, what I was thinking about is maybe he's a guy similar to Colton Wong in the sense that he uh, can steal a decent amount of bases, uh, have an okay batting average, you know, maybe not produce a ton of power, but, you know, um, uh, but, you know, be able to be like a, a decent 15 team middle infielder. And when I look at what was paid for him in different leagues, you know, um, uh, there was there was bids of 300 plus for him. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it a, a good bid. I actually have higher expectations for Cole Tucker than I did for um, Colton Wong. But, you know, that might be an example where you can look back and kind of say like, OK, like what did folks bet on him um, you know, uh, the, the last time or a similar guy and kind of looking at what that, what that looks like. Um, I also think that it's important, you know, in a hundred dollar league, as opposed to a thousand dollar league, each one of those dollars, you know, is valuable. Uh, it also depends on whether you have $0 bids or not. Um, so what I would do is similar to what I, you know, and this is kind of what my, uh, responses to a lot of these questions is is you need to have different filters that you're viewing folks through. So think about what your team needs are, right? Like for me, again, using Cole Tucker as an example, my need in one of my main events was speed. I'm way down in speed. I was doing really well um, overall. So I was down in speed and I needed a middle infielder um, uh, to fill in. And so because of those two things, Cole Tucker seemed like you know, uh, the guy that would really fit the bill and kind of uh, with a dire situation on the waiver wire, he was the guy that seemed 
um, most likely in the near future to be able to fill that need and potentially for the full season because of the situation. And so I bid a lot on him. That I think is an example of when you need to be kind of selectively aggressive um, on folks. But, you know, don't, um, what I would say is don't go crazy on um, guys who are going to be streamers, right? The marginal difference in value um, when you're picking up guys streaming, especially in today's context, like, in a $100 league, I would not be betting like three, three $4 worth of fab you know, on, um, on streamers because I think the difference between that streamer versus you know, a guy, uh, the, the, the second uh, guy behind him is not that high. Um, so I would keep those relatively low. Another thing I think that can be really helpful too in bid amounts is in addition to just knowing your league and kind of looking about like what might be there, one really useful tool that Jeff Zimmerman puts out every week is kind of like a an estimator for what fab might be. Um, and so taking a look at that, that's something that I've, I've uh, grown accustomed to taking a look at before I do my fab bids just to see if I'm in the general territory. And I probably should have done that before my Colt Tucker bid because uh, he was my much lower on Jeff's spreadsheet than my uh, my three hundred dollar bid, um, you know, and so that's another example of something that you um, can use. How long are you planning to keep the guy? Is it just a week? Is it two weeks? Is it a, does he have a nice run of starts during that month? You know, whatever it is, looking at that, and then I find that a lot of people will use similar bid amounts, um, and so like. Yeah, take a look at this in your league, but a lot of guys will do something where nobody likes to leave zeros um, as their bid amounts, right? And, and you probably should, uh, you probably shouldn't like, if you're gonna bid $10, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, I'll just bid 11 because everybody's gonna bid $10. But you'll find that some people always bid ending in four or always bid ending in three or always bid ending in three and seven. And so I think just being cognizant of things like that, because that can be really helpful because if you think like a guy is going to go between $10 and $20, like 10 to $20, and you know that a guy always bids, you know, uh, with a bid ending in the number four, uh, then you might say, oh, well, you know, um, I might be in competition with this guy. I'm going to bid five, right? I'm going to put in that extra dollar. The difference between 14 and 15 is not huge, but maybe that gives me a little bit of a leg up on on this person. And so I think those are examples of just ways that you can research um, fab bids previously, different filters you can run folks through to determine what might be the best strategy for bid amounts. But I, what I would say is like, there's nothing worse than really wanting a guy and feeling like a guy is a really good fit for your team and missing out on him. So don't be afraid to look foolish and put a bid out there that's a really strong bid on a guy that you want because there's only so many guys, especially in deeper leagues, uh, that come out like that. That's actually a really good reminder because this is a mistake that I made in my NFBC leagues, but is making sure that you are adjusting your bid amounts for the league um, depth. So uh, the general rule of thumb is the deeper the league, um, the higher the amounts are going to have to be to get quality players. So an example would be like, for Cole Tucker, I think his average bid amount was like $200 across all NFBC uh, mains. Um, and those are 15 team leagues. Um, in $12, uh, you know, Roto Online Championships in NFBC, which is generally like, um, you know, not maybe not exact same players, but a lot of players play both of them. You know, he his average bid was probably like seventy five to a hundred dollars, maybe slightly better th above that. So there's a huge difference between those, and so really make sure that you're scaling the bid uh, to the uh, the depth of the league that you have.
Okay, next question. How do you determine who to play in a weekly format when you have some teams playing five games, others six or seven? Then injuries like injuries start. Uh, Yelich, whose team plays seven, or Domingo Santana, who plays for sure five games. Uh, This is a really good question too. One thing that I always do before fab runs is I take a look at the next week's matchups and even the next two week's matchups. So uh, two resources that I really like. The first is the Fantasy Forecaster uh, at ESPN that Tristan Cockroft puts out. It comes out every Friday and it essentially uh, gives a 1 to 10 numerical score with 10 being the best and 1 being the worst of each each day's matchup for hitting left-handed hitters, right-handed hitters, uh, and then stolen bases. Um, And so it gives you a good, and then overall for the week, what the kind of composite um, uh, number is. And so with guys like that, uh, so a resource like that is super useful, especially one um, that does, um, I like the forecaster because it has stolen bases. Um, And the other one that I like is the uh, weekly planner uh, that the um, that Fantasy Pros puts out and where they kind of rank uh, the uh, the level of difficulty of different hitting and pitching matchups for different teams. And so I always look at that before um, I uh, uh, before I, I do my fab just to identify whether there are any weaknesses in my lineup, whether that's a, a guy who's not that good, who's got a tough five-week matchup, or maybe a guy who plays seven games but is going up against the Dodgers and the Indians or something like that. You know, um, So always looking ahead like that and planning with your fab bids if you have the opportunity you know, to add guys who might have uh, favorable matchups. And so I always do that because a lot of times like with your, with your players, right, you have your guys that you drafted in maybe the first 10 rounds that you start every week. Um, but then there may be other guys who like rounds, you know, 10 through 30, where the, the, the difference between them and value isn't that great. And so really what you should be looking at is who has the preferable matchups for that given week. And so I think that's a way that you can kind of get at that um, and be able to, um, uh, you know, use that in determining who you should play or who you shouldn't play. Also understanding, again, like whether you're in a daily league, whether you can switch out your hitters middle of the week, whether you're in a weekly league, whatever it is, um, thinking about uh, things like that. So those, those are examples of things that you can use in addition to what I'm always doing is looking at like 14 game, uh, last 14 games, last 30 games as the season gets older, like who looks like they're playing really well um, and, and kind of uh, adding some guys maybe based on that who have good matchups. Um, when it comes to injured players, I'm generally fairly conservative. Like if there's a question about whether a guy is going to play or not, um, I'm, I'm likely, especially since I play mostly in NFBC and in other leagues where it's kind of like middle of the week lineup changes, is I'll generally side on, on the side of caution and I'll go with the guy, the, the known quantity, right? Like I'll go with the guy who I know uh, is going to be healthy. And again, like a lot of it, you know, uh, the Yelich example is one example where it's like your first round pick, one of the best players in the game, you know, versus a guy who's who's pretty good, right? That's difficult. And sometimes you'll have to make those decisions, but a lot of them are actually much more kind of like straightforward, like, you know, your, you know, your guy who's pretty good um, might be injured and your guy who's just good um, isn't injured. And so that makes it a little bit easier. It's tougher with those difficult um, things like with Yelich. So I think, you know, number one, I think it's, uh, I think in these situations, like, so I'm generally siding on health. 
Um, but again, that's partially a, a, a result of kind of league context because I know that if Yelich is healthy, then I can plug him in for the last three games of the week. And so I don't feel as bad as if I were to miss out on all seven. But in the situation with Yelich or Santana, what I'd essentially do is I'd, I'd say, okay, you know, Yelich, does he have good matchups? Does he not have good matchups? How many games would he have to play this week for me to feel like he's more valuable than, um, you know, uh, than Domingo Santana? And there are some resources out there. Um, uh, Rasval, I believe, has uh, like a weekly um, and daily uh, player rankings and, um, and projections. And so you can use things like that if you want to be super exact. For me, it's much more just like, you know, okay, well, if Yelich would have to play three games compared to Santana's five for me to feel like he was valuable, what percentage chance do I think that that's going to happen? Is that a 50% chance? Is that a 25% chance? Like, you know, and then and then based on that, really making it uh, a, uh, you know, about the odds. Like, does it seem like, um, you know, the... Uh, you know the chance of him getting hitting those three games you know is uh is is above 50% like what's the chance he's going to miss all seven of them and again it's it can be more exact than what i'm saying but it's kind of inexact and in going with as much information as you have at the time and and kind of playing that game of you know what what would i need from this player to start them ahead of this guy and does that look like it's going to happen all right i hope that was helpful um, uh, in, in kind of answering, answering that, but definitely be aware of your league settings and, and, and lineup changes there. Um, the, uh, last question that I'm going to cover is, can you possibly talk about the value of top relievers like Osuna and Yates when it comes to trade value for starting put pitchers? What would be a fair value back? You know, I think trade advice is always really tough. Um, it's one thing that I struggle with just because it's so context heavy, right? I'm a firm believer that it's okay to lose a trade if it makes your team better. And so, so much of it is context and what you need. Um, in today's game, I think the types of relievers like Osuna and Yates, uh, they have so much perceived value, whether it's true or not, because they're consistent performers, they have solid holds on the jobs. And so I think for that reason, they can often bring back a ton of value. Um, and so, you know, and it also makes them harder to lose. But like, you know, the thing for me always with uh, relief pitchers versus starting pitchers is volume. So especially in like uh, strikeout leagues versus K per nine leagues, like starting pitchers can get you the Ks, they can help you with those ratios so much, they can get you the wins. And the relief pitchers, the only thing that they can, you know, they'll get you better ratios potentially than the starters, but, you know, the saves is really what differentiates them, at least in strikeout leagues. Again, they have more value in like K per nine leagues. So again, league settings is always really, really important important. Um, but, you know, if you are able to use that perceived value that those closers have, like the idea that there's nobody else out there who can uh, replace them, and, and there may not be, but, you know, there's always closers coming out of the woodwork, right? Like Hansel Robles. Um, you know, and so, um, uh, sorry, I've got to like include Hansel Robles in this as much as I possibly can. And so if you can turn that into you know, uh, uh, an SP2, if that's a need that you have, even an SP1 in some situations, like an SP1 who's struggling, you know, that is a deal that I'm, I would make a lot of the time just because I think that starters, 
uh, are a lot more valuable than relief pitchers. And I think the, the research bears that out. So if you're able to turn one of those guys into like a Jack Flaherty, who I think, you know, pitched really well recently, but the skills have been really, really nice. Like that's an example of a trade that I would definitely do um, if I was weak in starting pitching. But just make sure that you're filling the needs that your team has if you are going to be trading a guy like that and that you have a plan for how you're going to backfill those saves if you need them. Um, so, you know, with the example of Osina, Osuna and Yates, like if you have, you know, two or three other closers that you feel really good about or, um, you know, then then that then that they'd be guys that I might look at dealing um, to try to address a need that I have. So, all right. Uh, I hope that was helpful in answering uh, that question. Um, but, you know, again, like if you're able to turn a closer into an SP1 who's struggling or an SP2, I think um, I think you you. You do that deal, at least at least I do. All right, well, I hope that mailbag was helpful. Definitely give me your feedback on um, what you thought. Uh, I had some other questions um, that were there that I'll try to cover in future podcasts or on Twitter. Um, but yeah, um, really enjoyed uh, those questions, and I love thinking through strategy like that. If you disagree with anything that I said or uh, just want to engage in discussion on Twitter, definitely hit me up there. All right, that is going to wrap us up for episode 75 of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. Pretty crazy that we are um, at 75. We are at three quarters of a century of podcasts, and it's been a little bit less than a year. So always super appreciative of folks listening. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hope these hitter and pitcher observations are helpful. Hope that the mailbag uh, responses made sense. Um, whether you agree with them or not, let me know. Uh, engage on Twitter. Always love having those strategic conversations. Um, you know, those those really make the game so much fun. There's so much complexity. There's so much nuance. There's so many different ways uh, to play the game, and that's one of the things that makes fantasy baseball great. All right, thank you so much for listening. Best of luck with all of your fantasy baseball research. Take care and be kind to one another. <laughs>